0: There we go. All right. Today we're in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read verse 25 through 29. And as I always ask, if you would stand in the honor of reading God's word tonight. Luke chapter 10, starting verse 25. And an expert of the law stood up and put him to the test, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Just a moment. <laughs> with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Let me open with prayer, and then you can be seated. Dear only Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that your word does in each of our hearts. Lord, I pray tonight that as your word has been saying and as I preach now your word, Lord, I just pray that you speak to the hearts of your people. Lord, we thank you and we love you. And Lord, I pray most of all tonight that you are glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mm. Well, I'm sure my wife would disagree, but I have one major problem. And when I get a little bit nervous, I tend to cry. That is a uh, quality that I find endearing, not really. But uh, usually, I prefer to make other people cry. At least uh, it seems like that way with Darlene sometimes. But here it is tonight. I don't know why it is. It just kind of hit me. So, anyway, tonight, as we look at this passage, we know this leads into the uh, the parable that we'll read even further. I just wanted to open with the uh, open up with the uh, text Jesus had uh, where, uh, the the. The speaking he had with the expert of the law. We'll talk about the Good Samaritan in just a moment. But this uh, parable that we'll be looking at, if we look at it like a lot of other passages in the Bible, it can become simply principles on how to be a good person or neighborly. Kind, caring, concerned, helpful maybe. But if we interpret Scripture in such a surface or man-centered way, when we approach Scripture in this way, then the understanding of the passages... Such as David and Goliath become a pep rally promoting how you too can overcome the giants of your life. Maybe the Ten Commandments become a nice and tidy, concise checklist for living a good life. Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection become God's reaction to man's dire predicament. Jesus' healings and miracles become things that God desires to give to every person everywhere at every time if only man can figure out how to receive it. And then your salvation becomes all about you, for you, centered you, centered on you, so that you can have your best life now. You know, I say some of these things over and over, but they, they speak to me. Whenever I look at passages like this about the Good Samaritan, and I only read the lead-in, because I didn't want to get it clouded with the Good Samaritan, not that we won't read that. But many times, and I even spoke to a man that we were living with or near in India, who was a missionary, whenever we talked about this passage years ago, and he was adamant that this parable and this passage was how to be a neighbor. How to be a neighbor. And yet in the midst of this, we find some principles on how to be a good person, or how how we should be. But if we get it confused with a way of life and it becomes the way to life, then we have messed it up because being a neighbor is not a way to eternal life. Being a neighbor like Jesus is the only true neighbor. It is our way to life. Hopefully I haven't said anything backwards. If I did, forgive me. So anyway, so today in our text, verses 25 all the way through 37. Like I said, I've only read the first few. But 25 through 30, 37, we find four different questions. And I want you to, to uh, be uh, be mindful of them today. But the very first question we find, and the, the expert, or it says lawyer, and I don't want to confuse, and I usually use the term expert of the law, because some, sometimes when we think about lawyer, we think of what we know today as an attorney or a lawyer, and that's not what this is. This is someone who would have been an expert in the first five books of the Bible, the law as they knew it, the law of Moses. He he wasn't just a, an armchair theologian who studied the Bible in the evening or did a devotion in the morning. He was an expert in the law of Moses. He had devoted his life to it. And here he stands up. And he asked that question, and we see it here. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we look at this question, I want you to see the wording. And that's one of the things that I have grown where I love to look at the wording of the Bible because it is important. Here in in America, we speak mm, generally many times. We use words in ways that they probably don't mean. We use wrong verb tenses and things. We do all types of things with vocabulary, and we speak generally. One of the ways I learned that was because when we moved to India, I attempted, and I say attempted, to learn another language. And that was one of the most humbling things I ever, ever tried to do. I remember sitting across the table from a man, a young man, his name was Vicky. I didn't have the heart to tell him he had a girl's name. But anyway... Vicky would, would, uh, he was a language instructor, but unfortunately for me, he knew how to speak Hindi and Bengali and probably another language and English, but he didn't know why he said it the way he said it. So it caused me to have to pick apart words and pick apart phrases, and I said, why do you say it that way? And he would get frustrated with me just as I got frustrated with him because he would say a word and I would repeat it and he'd go, no. And I go, I just repeated that word exactly, you know, with an English, I call it a Hinglish accent. Anyway, but he would get frustrated. He goes, I don't know why we say it that way. Finally, he would tell me. I needed to know the rules of the language. The reason I say that is we look here today, simple little word. Let's look right here. He says, teacher, what shall? There it is, shall. Shall I do. Now, shall is an interesting word. Most of the time we will say will. I don't usually use shall. Shall. You know, it's not a word that we use a lot. But shall is a word which comes with authority. It comes from a position of authority. Here, this teacher or expert of the law, not teacher, expert of the law, he says, what shall I do? He had two things going on here. He had one right and one wrong. You see, the word of God spoke with authority to him. That's where the shall come from. But then he says, I do. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it was a, it was a question, and I, asked, I wrote out here to the side. Was it a genuine question? Well, we know from the text, it says that he did this to test Jesus. But we find another person in the New Testament, the rich young ruler, if you remember him. He came to Jesus, he asked the same question, but he used the term good. He said, good teacher, what shall I do? The fact is, is it was a normal question, apparently, in their day and age, in their culture. But yet, he spoke to Jesus, testing Jesus. Now, let me finish up here. Shall is spoken, reflecting one's duty to perform. But the authority is from outside the person. As we look here, some translations, and maybe yours will say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The reason I say this, you can see the the way that the text will change. If you were to say, what can I do? What should I do? But here we find, what shall I do? So here he was. He was asking a typical question. How many people here in America would like to know, whether they ask or not, what's going to happen to me when I die? What's going to happen to me when I die? And I told you a few weeks ago, I haven't ever met anyone who wants to go to hell when they die. Everyone wants to go to heaven. They're just not sure how to get there, and they sure don't have the expert opinion of a man who has studied the first five books of the Bible probably the majority of his life. By the way, Pharisees, and I can't imagine this man being too, different, too much different, Pharisees, if they would have made it through the two or three levels of schools, whatever, they would have had the first five books memorized to heart. So I can only imagine this man being an expert is the same. He has memorized the scripture. And yet here he comes in his arrogance, really, to test Jesus. But instead, what do we find? The second question, Jesus turns the table, doesn't he? He tests this man. He says, what's written in the law? Let me read. He says, yeah, there it is. Verse 26. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Some translations say, how does it read to you? Basically, is saying, how do you understand it? How do you interpret it? This is a powerful question because this is really important. You know how many people I've talked to? And I remember a, a visit we had. We used to go to I Know the First Baptist, and they had Monday night visitation. By the way, people would it was so bad in that town that people would lock their door or they would leave their home on Monday night. That's how bad it was. The Baptists are coming. That's true. I mean, serious. I remember knocking on a door one time. The, the curtain moved, curtain moved, the light on the porch, excuse me, the light on the porch came on, the curtain moved, the curtain moved back, the light went off, that was it, they were not coming to the door. The Baptists had wore their welcome out there. So anyway, anyway, I don't even know where I was going with that, so here, that was free, by the way. Anyway, so here it is, it says, how do you understand it? People today want to know what's going to happen when they die, and many times they have a, an opinion. And By the way, an opinion is all they have because they've mixed things together. I remember a lady we went and visited her and her son, and I knew her husband before she had been divorced, and they were visited our church, and she said, "I remember saying it. I believe the Bible." So I asked a question, and then she said she believed in reincarnation, and I said, oh, "I said I thought you I thought you understand that. Are you believe the Bible?" And she goes. I do believe the Bible. I'm going, I don't know what Bible you're reading because it's not in there, but you have all these opinions and they're mixing stuff together. And yet here is a question that is really, if not on the lips of many people, it's in the heart of many people. What's going to happen when I die? How do I get eternal life? Nobody wants to be worm food, do we? We we know there's something within us that screams out that there is more than this life. There's something that's more. I, I, I get to minister on Tuesdays and Thursdays to men in the in the recovering addicts home. And that's one of the things, and I probably share it with you. I'm getting old enough, I repeat stories, so stick with me. I share it with them, and I really do. Ecclesiastes 3, it talks about how, how eternity has been placed in the hearts of man. They don't understand it. And that's one of the things, when you speak the truth of God's word, and their mind becomes clear, then their hearts run after it. Now, their feet may never run after it, but it identifies with something deep within. and We can call it the imago Day. We can, we can call it uh, the image of God that's placed within all people, but yet it is there. People have this innate desire to know what's going to happen. Why? Because we know that it doesn't end here. Something bigger, something better, something else is there. So culturally, what do we look at here with this man, this Jewish man who was an expert in the law? Culturally. Culturally, he was an expert, Jewish through and through. He would have had little wooden boxes called phylacteries strapped to his wrist, one across his forehead. And inside, I apologize, I'll get past this in a minute. Inside those little boxes would have been pieces of of scrap paper, little pieces of paper rolled up and they would write the word of God. On those, on, those, on those pieces of paper, and they would have kept them, kept them on their forehead and on the wrist. His beard would have been trimmed in a certain way. His clothing was peculiar. He had tassels on the corners of his cloth, uh, clothes. He would have had a talid, which is similar to a scarf, draped over his shoulders. How he dressed, where he went, what he ate, what he said, everything about his life was governed by those words, How do you read it? Jesus said, how do you read it? That's the question I want to pose to us today because understanding it, this man would have had lots of rabbinical writings called the Tanakh, I believe. He would have studied and he would have been someone who was looking for how to interpret the scriptures. The expert's answer was this and you'll see it in your, in your text. He said, you shall love the Lord. Here we have that word shall. and I don't want to point it out just to be redundant. But he saw it come to him with authority. It wasn't perceived that I need to say it this way. He understood that those words came with authority. It's called the divine imperative. Thou shalt. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. So with the complete wholeness of of all your being, you are to love the Lord. And Jesus answers him. And you see the text. He says, you've got this right. Do this and you will live. Well, there's the problem, isn't it? He says, do this and you will have eternal life. Now, we all know where we stand. We're unable to do that. Not not just unable. Most of us, most of the time, are unwilling, aren't we? Here we find the expert. He says, wanting to justify himself. Now, let's look right here. He said, wishing to justify himself, he asked the third question in verse 29. Twenty-nine. He said, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Let me see if I have some more, some more notes here. He asked that question, who is my neighbor? So the question we go back to, how do you read it? How do you understand God's word? I'll share a story with you where we were uh, traveling one day in India and one of the missionaries had been in an accident. They'd been traveling down the road and a car rammed them from behind. They were just traveling down the road, got run into, had to take their vehicle to the to the body shop to have it repaired. And they were talking and my friend Kumar was standing there and we were talking about what had happened. And they said, and because it was a sheriff, a, a, a policeman that ran into the back of this lady, they they said, you have to fix your own car. And we were talking about how unfair that was. And my friend Kumar He said, Well, that's the way it should be. It was her fault. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking if somebody runs into the back of me while I'm standing or sitting in traffic, how can that be my fault? And the reason I say that is culturally, and I want to point this out culturally, I'm not Indian. Uh, Dot, not feather. Okay? I'm not Indian. All right? I I don't understand them, and I'm trying to pick this man's brain, trying to understand why I'm going, Kamar, how could it be her fault? And he goes, well, it was posted in the newspaper that the the police dignitaries and everybody would be coming through at a certain time. It was her responsibility to get off the road. (laughs) Yeah. Now, put that in your American little mind and try to figure that one out. Now, we live in the land of the free, you know, we get to do what we want. Nobody's going to tell me to move over. You know, all those little things that we don't think about. But yet, culturally, he understood something totally different than me. So when I think about that question, I've got ahead of myself, so bear with me. I had another piece of paper slid in there. So anyway, when we get in the, our world, if you were to ask them, how do they understand God's Word? Our world seeks to nullify God's Word, diminish it and set it aside. Perhaps even laugh at it and us those who hold it dear calling it foolishness i remember sharing the gospel with a man at his home his wife is in the kitchen praying and when i got done sharing the gospel with him i said understanding what i just shared are you ready to surrender your life to jesus christ he looked at me dead in the face and then he started laughing he said you really think i'm going to do that here now are you serious And I was really taken back. He quietly listened, but he considered it to be foolish, foolishness. So as we think about the world, it's easy to go, well, the world this and the world that. But what about the church? How do we read it? How do we read God's word? Because how we read God's word will determine what we do with our life. How we read it? Is it about being neighborly? Love God, love people? That was the two commands, wasn't it? Love God somewhat and love some people or love God and love people. It's a big difference, isn't it? Loving God or loving God's, and I wrote this to the side, love God or love God's benefits and blessings. We seek his hand, but yet we do not seek his face you know some of the things that we see in our world today hot button issues about abortion very important by the way killing hundreds of millions of babies i mean it's just uh, uh, unbelievable for us to conceive the the topic of homosexuality we have hot button, hot button issues and yet we will sometimes rise up oh yeah and those are important aren't they but what about some other lower priority issues some, some that aren't quite as political. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. And by the way, I'm going to venture around a little bit today. I'm going to pull a few verses, not out of context. That's uh, hopefully not what I'll do. But I want to bring some things in and just cause us to think. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. John writes, But whoever has the world's good, goods, And sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And how about this one, Ezekiel? This is in the Old Testament. I know, I know you just found the other one. Bear with me. You didn't know you were gonna do a Bible drill tonight, did you? Ezekiel chapter three, thirty three. I'm gonna just tell you this while you're looking. I remember this passage, the very first time I read the Bible through, I remember underlining and stuff, and man, I was, I was really struck by this passage to try to understand it. But I'm just going to read it, let it fall where it may. I just want you to see some things, okay? Verse number 7, he says, But now, as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man... You shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. Word of God comes with stewardship, doesn't it? And then he says, but if you, on your part, warn the wicked man to turn from his wicked way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Now, I present this to you, and you might say, that's Old Testament. I'm going to just tell you this, that my God and the God of the Bible does not change. There is not one fraction of one degree of change within our God. Do I fully understand what that Old Testament says? All I can tell you is there is stewardship over the Word of God that God has granted to us. We are stewards over this Word, not to protect it. God doesn't need you to protect His Word. Okay, we'll look at what God's given the main role to the church and one of the, one of the main roles to the church in just a moment. But I want you to see those two. I remember in India when we were living there in an apartment complex and we'd go down after language training. It was some of the most tiring work I'd ever done, by the way. I was just exhausted. And they had a little workout room. And in the workout room was this young man who had lifted weights. And, and uh, every day I'd go in and, and I would try to witness to him. But one of the things that I saw very quickly was there's two ladies that come down from upper apartments and they both had had kids and they were in there trying to work out and and get in better shape. And one of the things I saw very quickly was how this young man was gravitating toward one lady. And this lady was gravitating toward that man. Now you say, well, that wasn't any of your business. I'm going to tell you that I had an obligation to share God's word with that young man. Now, did I to that lady? I didn't have a relationship with her. But here I am trying to to share the Christ with this young man. And what I, see, what I saw was this flirtatious um, relationship beginning to form. You say, w- what does that have to do? I had a responsibility to tell this young man the truth about God's word. I had a responsibility. And yet... The reason I point that out, just something so simple to speak the truth. I remember another young man at a church we were at. I was a, a deacon at that time. And this young man began dating a young lady. And she had a baby. nothing I, I'm not faulting her for that. But when we come to find out, just through a little bit of information, this young lady is still married. I had a responsibility as a deacon within that church to go and to speak to that young man to warn him about what he was doing. Not that she was a bad person. Or, I'm just saying, we have a, we have a responsibility, a stewardship over, the God, over God's word to speak the truth in love. Not in harshness, not in condemnation, but to speak the truth out of love. And people need to hear God's word. So as I think of some of these things that I've done and been part of in my life, and I've made many mistakes, by the way, I don't always do it right. But I want you to see that we have an obligation or a stewardship. Now, we'll look more deeply at these implications of this truth in just a little bit, okay? But this truth, both the one about uh, providing for people who are in need and also the stewardship over God's word comes interconnected, leading to one of man's greatest problems. So, as we look at our text... Let's go back here. The third question, who is my neighbor? The answer to this question seems obvious, doesn't it? Seems obvious to us who the neighbor would be. But to a Jew, the cultural problems were massive. Jesus tells the Bible expert a parable. Now, the parable will fly in the face of what the expert's religious system of beliefs held dear, but not what he knew deep inside his heart. I told you, Ecclesiastes 3, God has written in the hearts of man eternity there. It didn't fly in the face of that, but yet what he had been culturally taught and believed, it was, it was a, one of those uncomfortable inconsistencies in his life. And Jesus brought it out. Now, let's look at this passage, verse 30. Jesus replied and tells the man a parable. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also. And when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion, came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring out oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robber's hands? And then we get to the fourth question. And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Isn't it amazing? He didn't say the Samaritan, did he? He wasn't even willing, as a Jewish man, culturally, was not even willing to say it was the Samaritan. He said it was the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, as we look at this passage, the cultural problems for the expert of the law was massive. Jesus tells him a parable. And here we have this picture. A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, stripped him, beat him, leaving him half dead. And then two religious leaders of the day, priest and a Levite, passed by unable by the way the law would have prevented them and yet they were also unwilling unable and willing to help and then jesus tells of a samaritan who came stopped willing and able to help and promised to come back again now how can we see the gospel in this story John chapter 3, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus tells us that you must be born again. All of mankind has been robbed, beaten, and left half dead. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. We see in this simple picture of the Samaritan man, this, this story of the neighborly Samaritan. We see a picture of of mankind who has been beaten and robbed and left half dead. The priest and the Levite, the law and the sacrificial system did not and cannot save. Romans 8 chapter 3 says, for what the law was powerless to do because of its, it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. In this, pic, or in this story, the Samaritan, in this figure, we can see Jesus through his dual identity. Fully God and fully man, able and willingly providing for man what he himself could not do. Man was unable, but also what the law was powerless to do. We see Christ's compassion and his willingness and also his ability. Ultimately, he promised to return. We see that through Christ and his promise in the scriptures. Now, the question that we end with was, which one proved to be a neighbor? The priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. Which one? The one who showed mercy and compassion. And by the way, as a good preacher does, I looked up mercy and compassion. They're very similar. Did you know what the difference is? One is active and actually one is feelings. You see, mercy is active. Mercy denotes an action on the person. Feelings or compassion deal with what you feel on the inside. So mercy is, is tender mercy, active compassion. And then compassion is feeling sympathy and being moved deep within. Jesus tells him to go and do likewise. Now this is where we might get jammed up. Jesus says go and do likewise. The problem is the expert in the law could not do what, the, what Jesus had commanded. I had an, a man argue with me. Jesus wouldn't have told him to do something he couldn't do. Scripture tells us very clearly that we are unable. And it's called the doctrine of man's total inability. To go and do likewise was not a command to earn salvation, but rather a word of revelation of man's inability. Can we do good things? Can we act neighborly at times with certain people? Sure we can. But can we do it perfectly? Can we be the neighbor in this story, in this parable? We cannot be. Now, the question that I let me find my notes here, I come to here as we look more deeply at some of the truths I spoke about, man's total inability. I want you to see it. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse three and four. You can write that down. I'll just quote it for you if you want to turn there. But Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church. He said, "If our gospel is veiled." Or hidden, it is hidden to the eyes of the unbeliever. it is veiled to those who are perishing, and the God of this age is the one who blinds the eye so they cannot see. We see man's inability in these passages, where man is unable to see the truth. Now, if, if you know what, and I, I probably I used to say it wrong just because it helps me, uh, thesis and antithesis their extremes their polemical truths such as the north and the south pole being at opposite ends that's what this is when we look at this this truth that we find in second corinthians chapter 4 verse 3 and 4 the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing and it's done so with an outside force who's doing it the god of this age is blinding the eyes of the unbelievers now what is the opposite truth that we can find the gospel is revealed to those who are being saved. The gospel was revealed. I have salvation because I was smarter than someone else. Because I took a Bible class, YouTube University. I learned. You no, know, I heard a good preacher, and I learned. I figured out how to get saved. You no, know, the gospel tells us that our eyes were blinded. But God removed the veil of blindness from our eyes. We find those two truths. Here we see the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, but yet the gospel is revealed to those who are saved. Have you ever thought about what it takes to be saved? Now, I'm not talking about the completed work of Christ on the cross, His death, burial, and resurrection, the plan of salvation in eternity past. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about here and now, there are three things. and You can write them down. I'm going to give you the verses. Three things that must happen for someone to be saved. First, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is just one place you'll find it. It says the the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. First, the Jew and then the Gentile. I want you to know the first thing that must happen is the gospel must be made known. If the gospel is not shared, whether verbally, written on a track, they don't read it. If they read it in the scriptures, the gospel must be made known to someone. If you have salvation, it is because your eyes have been opened to the gospel that was brought to you. The second thing that must happen, John chapter six verse forty-four, Jesus is uh, conversing with the uh, the Pharisees. They're grumbling. He says, "Why do you grumble?" no one can come to me unless the father draws him the word no one can no one can come that is speaking to man's inability we are unable to come to christ the holy spirit is who draws us to salvation so we see the first thing the gospels made known the holy spirit draws us to salvation and then thirdly acts 238 Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, repent and be baptized. Basically, he's saying, repent and obey the word of God. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. We see three things. The gospel, Holy Spirit must work. And thirdly, the person must repent. We must repent. Now, why is this important? Why is this so important, by the way? When we look at God's word, and I go back to the very first question Jesus asked the man, he says, how do you read it? You see, God's word is not a lighthearted how-to manual for your best life now. You see, when we mess things up, it becomes a way to life versus a way of life. I got that backwards. When we mess it up, it becomes a way of life instead of a way to life. And then I also said this, I wrote this, has it revealed to you just how rare, now this is what I want you to think of, has it revealed to you just how rare and precious your salvation truly is? You think about this, there's over 3 billion people in the world today and I'm not counting the countless billions that have died before us, that have been born and lived their entire life and have never heard the name Jesus over 3 billion, and that's probably a small number. Billions upon billions of people have never heard the name of Jesus. Therefore, they've never heard the gospel. They cannot be saved without the gospel. You see, the first thing I want you to see is that the gospel has been given to the church. It is our responsibility It is our stewardship of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make it known to those who are perishing. Now, I'm not just beating the same old drum. You see, the problem is, is I go through days without telling anyone about Jesus. I've been very blessed to be able to have opportunities to share with people about Jesus Christ. And I'd love to tell you, because Barry Chup preaches an awesome gospel that people just come and get saved all the time. The truth is, is it's not my responsibility to save someone, is it? That's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to draw them to salvation. They must repent. But yet I have a responsibility. I have a role that God has given to me. So the question I led out was, how do you read the Bible? If you don't read it in such a way that the gospel is your responsibility. You have been placed as stewards over the gospel. Not a preacher. Although he has a role. But the people in the pew I go to church after church, and I preach. And I'm not against older congregations, but there'll be seven or eight people. They're three or four years at best away from closing their door. And the fact is, is most of them have spent their life, spent their life sitting in a pew and never telling anyone about Jesus. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Will we be gospel preachers? And I'm not talking about in a pulpit. Will you make the gospel known? How you read the gospel or how you read the Bible will be reflected in your life. Can you see how your, let's go back to this, can you see how your total inability was overcome through the gospel? You didn't just figure it out. Someone made a difference in your life. Can you see how your total inability was overcome through the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing to you to a full surrender of Jesus Christ? We do not sit in the church. Excuse me, I can't even read my writing. We do not sit in the chair of first cause in our salvation. Do you realize that? You didn't cause your salvation. God sits in the chair of first cause. Rather, we have been enabled by the gospel, drawn by the Holy Spirit. God reached through time and space to make his gospel known to you. It is not an accident that someone has told you the gospel. God ordained it to be so. The veil that once covered our eyes was sovereignly lifted, revealing a beauty. Wow. Revealing a beauty that overwhelmed my soul. You see, the opposite end of that statement is the beauty of God that overwhelmed my soul, also brought me to a place where I was overwhelmed by my sin. The two opposite ends of the very things. And I wanted to let go of the old and I wanted to run toward the new. God reached out and made his gospel known to you. So the question, I read it one last time, how do you read it, is a powerful statement to me. How you read it will determine whether or not you embrace your God-given role to make his gospel known to those around you. I'm going to close with that, and I know tonight is not a nice and tidy evangelistic sermon, and I'll try my best to lead into that. But there may be someone here today. You know deep down in your heart that you don't know Jesus Christ. You know deep down in your heart that you have not surrendered your life to him. You live your life for yourself. And like many other Americans, you just don't want to go to hell when you die. Maybe you have a a more positive outlook. You want to go to heaven. Well, the Bible tells us that what you want is Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. He is the one who makes a way where there is no way. And without Christ, you are unable. But the good news today is that Jesus' work on the cross satisfied the Father's wrath. He made a way where in, in and of ourselves there is no way. Jesus is the one that we run to. Jesus is the one that we surrender our life to. And he is the one who changes us. For those of you who are church members, and I'll say pretty good ones on a Wednesday night, how about you? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you telling other people about Jesus? Has it been a week? Has it been a month? Has it been a year? Where do you fall? Question I will close with is how do you read it? Let's close with prayer and then we can close tonight. Dearly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you began in our lives. Lord, Your Word roots down deep. and begins to push away those things that become so intertwined in our life that they're rooted in deep. But Lord, Your Word never gives up. I thank You for the tenacious and unrelenting work of Your Word in our life. Lord, I pray for this church. Although I don't know many faces, Lord, I know that You are at work here. Lord, make this church even more than it ever has been before, a gospel-proclaiming church. Lord, I pray for these people's neighbors and their co-workers and their children and their relatives. Lord, I pray that they will know the truth of your word because they've embraced the stewardship you've given them, ordained to be their role over the gospel in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you all will please stand. We'll have an altar call. If you have need in your life to turn over to Christ or just a neighbor that needs prayed for, you can come at this time. have thine own-